What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this bonus episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're featuring the first episode of our new podcast, Intelligence Squared Business. Yes, in our age of COVID-19 and climate change, the need to debate our economic future has arguably never been more important. In our new podcast, we'll speak to authors, business leaders, and public intellectuals about the future of capitalism and the trends changing the world of business. In episode one, we were joined by Reeves Weideman, author of the new book, Billion Dollar Loser, The Epic Rise and Fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. It's a fascinating conversation and it was hosted by Linda Yu, the economist and broadcaster. And if you do enjoy it, please do subscribe to our new podcast via the link in the episode description. Just click through, hit the subscribe button, and every Thursday you'll get another Intelligence Squared podcast around the world of business and the future of capitalism. We hope you enjoy it. And now let's go to the episode. When a lot of employees got there, they were really excited. And and to hear Adam get up on stage and tell them, you know, we're not just renting out office space, we're changing the world, we're making a difference in people's lives every single day, was, was really inspiring to people. I saw it as a story about the last decade in a number of ways and, and the decade of the 2010s in, in kind of the startup world and, and the fact that so much of the growth that existed in, in a decade of growth um, was these kinds of companies that grew, grew very quickly. Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and author of The Great Economist. I'm delighted to be joined by Reeves Weideman, contributing editor at New York Magazine, to talk about his new book, Billion Dollar Loser, The Epic Rise and Spectacular Fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. So WeWork is a co-working office space company founded about a decade um, or so ago and was the largest office tenant in New York City and second in London next to only the UK government. Valued at $47 billion at its peak, it was the second most valuable private startup in America. It then had a failed IPO in 2019 that the New York Times described as, quote, an implosion unlike any other in the history of startups. So Reeves, let's talk about what happened to WeWork and its co-founder yeah, and sure. CEO, Adam Newman. So you opened the book with a quote about Adam Newman um, and you quote his high school teacher who said, quote, either Adam will end up in jail or he'll become a millionaire. So why did you open with yeah. that quote? <laughs> 
Well, we thought it was fitting because I think part of, of what's interesting about this story and what was interesting about it to me as I reported on, on the company was that all of the good things about WeWork, or not all, but a lot of the good things and the reason it was successful um, stemmed from Adam Newman, um, as did a lot of the reasons it fell apart. And so it, it was interesting to find that that kind of this this personality that he had of, of someone who was who was so ambitious um, and and, you know, so charismatic and and always, you know, going at 110 percent. Uh, was there way back in in high school, and everyone could kind of rec- recognize that he was not going to be someone who, you know, just kind of disappeared into the ether. He was going to do something interesting, maybe a little crazy, maybe successful, maybe not. Um, but whatever it was, it, it was going to be interesting to watch what happened to to Adam from there. Um, you're right that some employees of WeWork we spoke to compared Adam Newman to Steve Jobs. Both emanated a, quote, reality distortion field that convinced Mm -hmm. anyone within his radius that the impossible was not only plausible, but exactly what they were going to do. So in your acknowledgments, you thank WeWork employees and mention that many of them use the opportunity of your conversations as a free therapy session. So what were your impressions of the employees as they were in this reality distortion field? And how did you conduct the research for this book? Yeah, well, there was there was kind of a, a shift for people. I, I think, you know, when when a lot of employees got there in in coming from in some cases straight out of college, in other cases from kind of boring jobs elsewhere, they were really excited. And and to hear Adam get up on stage and tell them, you know, we're not just renting out office space, we're changing the world, we're making a difference in people's lives every single day was was really inspiring to people. And and I think some of them had never had a job before, didn't know what was kind of quote unquote normal at a company. And 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 so, you know, when they found themselves working 80 hours a week, uh, 90 hours a week, they could kind of justify it in their heads because of, of the way Adam talked about uh, what they were doing. By the end of things, after the IPO had fell apart, um, as I started to talk to more and more people who had, who had left the company, either willingly or unwillingly, they they were sort of jaded. And, and often they talked about their experience in as, as if... Um, we work with some kind of cult that they had kind of escaped from uh, in, in a certain way that, that was exciting for a while, but eventually you sort of realize um, that uh, you, you're working, uh, your whole life is wrapped up in the, this company. All your friends um, are, are at this, at this, uh, at the company and, and you're sort of uncertain why you did this, especially given how things ended wow. up. So just um, say a bit about your research for the book. Um, thinking you write about in the book um, that you've talked to sure. hundreds of employees. Yeah, so I started reporting on the company back in the spring of 2019, back when things were sort of still flying high. The company was worth $47 billion. The IPO hadn't even been announced yet. Um, and at that point, uh, when I was just sort of writing a feature story for New York Magazine, we were just interested in the company because suddenly our office in Soho in New York was surrounded by half a dozen WeWorks, uh, seemingly sort of overnight. So it was trying to kind of look at um, what uh, just how this company had grown so quickly, so fast. And and as I started reporting then, um, again, back in uh, the spring of 2019, 
um, it became clear that that there were some un- unusual things about the company and that all of them, as, as we talked about at the top, uh, stemmed from Adam. Um, and and it was difficult to get people to talk about the company. And, and this is kind of the struggle of reporting about any of these kind of high-flying startups is, is that on the way up, everyone on the inside is, is kind of incentivized to go along with things, even, even if the things that they're seeing um, uh, give them pause. Uh, and, and that could be for one reason or another. One, one reason is that we were kind of cracked down on, on people a lot who, who did speak out. Um, and the other was just that people thought they were going to get rich. Um, if you were an executive at this company or even a low-level employee, um, you were being told over and over again by, by Adam and others that we're going to go public one day. Your stock's going to make all this work that you did worth it. So, so it was hard early on to get people to talk um, once the IPO fell apart and that incentive kind of went away and people were frankly kind of upset with Adam. Um, it was much easier to, to get people to speak about their experiences. And that, as, as you said, I ended up talking to, to a few hundred people uh, who worked at the company, um, both from the most junior ranks all the way to the, the most senior people um, within WeWork, uh, as well as kind of this, the investors and the landlords and all the people who sort of circled around the company and, and dealt with Adam over the years. Um- so, Reeve, say a bit more about what Adam Newman was like when you interviewed him um, for the book. You describe his office as having not just a private bathroom, but also mm-hmm. a sauna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had sort of a two-room suite uh, kind of back in the corner. He, he had this kind of sauna and cold plunge tub uh, that, that had been installed. And there was a certain irony to the whole thing. You know, the, the business of, of WeWork was squeezing people into these famous glass cubes that they, they had uh, installed all over the world. Um, it was squeezing people into smaller and smaller spaces. And, and here was Adam in, in kind of a, a, a pretty large office by, by any standard. You know, that being said, you you could sort of recognize in meeting him kind of some of the reasons that that people bought into what he was selling, whether that was investors or employees or, or whatever audience he was addressing. He he was just the kind of person who um, is, is charismatic, who who makes you kind of knows what you want to hear and and makes you believe in in kind of what he's he's selling. So. That was one of his great skills, and I think, you know, even in just sort of a brief interaction with him, you can see how how people were were attracted to to being around him. And um, give us a sense of the New York real estate world where we work started. Um, so you describe how Adam Newman and Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law, who was also um, in mm-hmm. real estate. Um, so tell us how they resolved disputes. I think uh, shots and arm wrestling <laughs> might have been involved. Yeah, well, well, yeah, New York real estate is as real estate anywhere has no shortage of colorful characters. And, and, um, you know, yeah, both both Adam and and Jared Kushner were kind of young real estate guys in in the city. Coming out of the last financial crisis, Jared was was trying to push his family business more and more into Manhattan. Adam was growing his business there. They were about the same age. And they connected. um, And and we worked did a did a few deals. with uh, with Kushner's uh, properties, both in in Brooklyn and, and Philadelphia, and and as you as you mentioned, you know, they they came up with a colorful way to kind of 
resolve one dispute, which was um, a, an arm wrestling match in, in Adam's office at WeWork headquarters uh, in lower Manhattan. Um, Jared lost. Uh, Adam bragged about how he had had done a lot of arm wrestling when he was in the Israeli Navy. Um, Jared did object to the the loss um, and and demanded a rematch, but but he lost that one as well. So we work uh, one one out on that deal. Wow. Um, okay. So in a nutshell, um, how did we work grow so fast? A few things, uh, all of which stem from money, um, is, is, is sort of the easy answer. I, I mean, if you go back and look at the early days of the company, they were not the first people to invent the idea of, of flexible office space or, or co-working or, or the various things that, that they did. There were other operators already. What what Adam had was, on the one hand, um, ambition. You know, a lot of people who, who run these companies are are happy to have a few spaces in one city here or there um, and and content with that and content with slow growth. Adam from the very beginning wanted to grow and he he had access to the capital um, necessary to do it. You know, this, as much as he would later often talk about the company as a sort of a tech company or at least a tech adjacent company, this was a real estate business. And, and to expand a real estate business, you need capital, um, you need investment just for the basic um construction and and operation of of your your spaces so um adam was in kind of elite circles or at least on the fringes of that in new york his his wife um uh rebecca paltrow was was gwyneth paltrow's cousin um so from the very early days he he, he had access to certain circles in in new york that that had money he was able to sort of tap that to to grow the company early on, and then from then on, he was he was very good at at pitching to investors. And and you know, some people like to just sort of suggest that there's some sort of con artist aspect to that. But the reality is, it's it's a it's a skill for for any business person. And Adam was was especially sort of adept at going to investors and convincing them that this was not just kind of a boring real estate business. Uh, but that this was a business that, that was going to disrupt um, the real estate world. And, you know, investors were, were obviously interested in that, given how big of a market potentially the commercial office space world was. They were willing to give him uh, really kind of shocking amounts of money, uh, escalating more and more over the years. And, and that was the crucial difference um, between WeWork and, and other companies in this industry was Adam's ability to raise that money to then spend to um, expand the WeWork empire. So I wanted to um, delve into this a bit. Um, so let's start with sure. WeWork's mission. Um, so you're mm -hmm. right, um, their mission was to elevate the world's consciousness. Um, community um, was mentioned in their IPO filing document 150 times, you write, while Office mm -hmm. Space appeared nine times. So you quote Adam yeah. Newman as saying that WeWork uh, wasn't a real estate company. It was a tech-enabled physical social network. So this is a big part of the uh, pitch, the rise, wasn't it? Yeah, this was this was the pitch that that somehow, you know, Adam was attaching WeWork to sort of the the other unicorns, the other billion dollar companies uh, in, in Silicon Valley and trying to sort of say that that WeWork was was, yeah, was not just renting out space, that they were creating this this social network. And, 
you know, the, the elevating the world's consciousness um, idea came came sort of later and was sort of the grandest manifestation of, of Adam's vision, which which, again, was was to kind of, as he said many times, to to change the world. And that was to change the world of real estate. But it was also to to do much more of that. And I, I think those the way that he talked about the company, while while it could sound ridiculous, and I think towards the end, it, it, it really came back to bite the company. It was kind of these these grand notions that Adam was good at talking about that that led people to buy into what he was selling. So I think just just to go into a bit, you know, shared office space. Um, you know, what was the kind of offering um, that mm-hmm. um, that sort of was behind um, this ambition or this pitch of um, the we company? Sure. The, the business is pretty simple. Um, we work rents out a space in an office. Um, they go in, they renovate it. Um, they make it look cool with, um, you know, uh, these, these sort of glass cubes, um, these big open common spaces with free coffee and beer kegs and, and all of that. Um, and then they rent out the individual offices. And, and if, if you're able to do that, if you're able to fill all those offices and you charge more than you're paying in rent, then you can make it a, a decent amount of money. And, and that's not a new business. There, there have been several over the years, including um, sort of most famously a company formerly known as Regis, now called IWG, that, that has been doing this for decades. Um, you know, they did a boring version of it. Uh, it was kind of, you know, white walls and acoustic ceiling tiles and, and that sort of thing. Um, WeWork offered uh, a, a different kind of vision for that, a more modern vision of, of what the office would be, a more millennial friendly kind of vision of, of what the office would be. And, and so at its core, that was something that, that people wanted. They wanted community in their offices. They liked the design and they liked the flexibility. You know, we were, if you, if you wanted, you could rent your office month to month, which was, is pretty unusual in the real estate world, um, where you, you often are, are stuck with a five or 10 year, or 20 year lease. So it was kind of those things that at its core we work offered and and for a long time it was it was what a lot of people wanted and then he had other businesses um that he was also developing as well as part of his offering yeah so and and kind of from the beginning um it, the, the, he had he had been thinking about this and and wanting to uh expand into other businesses one of the the first that they tried was we live and and we live was um, an apartment building. They they eventually built two, one in Washington D.C. and and one in New York City. Uh, that was sort of premised on the same idea. We're going to give you a small living space. Um, these were <laughs> tiny apartments, even by New York City standards. Um, and then these big open common spaces, big kitchens, a uh, laundry room with a pool table, those kinds of things. On the idea that that what people wanted was community in their spaces that they wanted to know their neighbors and and interact with them and you know uh that's that's uh goes against a lot of um uh received wisdom in in the residential real estate world uh people don't often voluntarily give up more personal private space um in in their in their homes but um, that was that was the idea, and and then from there they kind of spooled it into uh, starting a gym called Rise by We um, in in New York City, and uh, as well as an elementary school was kind of the the last iteration of this um, called We Grow that was led by uh, Rebecca Newman, um, 
uh, Adam's wife and, and, and was meant to be kind of fill in this sort of holistic world where someone could, could live at a, at a, we live, go to work at a, we work and, and send their kids to a, to a, we grow. Um, speaking of his wife, uh, Rebecca, um, you write that when Adam Newman was pitching this, we live concept, um, smaller personal space, more community space. Um, what was her reply? Uh, she was not interested in, in, uh, in, in living in that, uh, in that environment. So even though they thought this would be a place where, where the wealthy people would want to live as much as college students looking for a dorm experience, um, Rebecca rejected that. And what was Adam's uh, response uh, when you asked him about this mission, this, you know, this very, uh, to elevate the world's consciousness and all of these ambitions, what did he say to you? Well, it was a confusing conversation. Um, you know, I had, the thing that I relayed to him was that uh, when I um, mentioned the mission to, to people as I was telling them about WeWork, people who didn't know that much about the company and told them, and, and they may have known that it was, it was kind of an office space company and, and a cool office space company at that. And when I told them the mission was to elevate the world's consciousness, the most common response I got was, what does that mean? And so when I relayed that to Adam, he sort of got excited and said, that's, that's perfect. That's exactly what we want. We're starting the conversation about what it means to elevate the world's consciousness. And uh, I, I, I think that it's indicative of the fact that early on when the company was providing these great office spaces that, that people liked and, and was talking about, you know, build a life, not a living, making a better day at work for people. That was something that, that everyone could connect to, whether you were an employee or someone renting a space. And once it got to this notion of elevating the world's consciousness, which again, sounds good and well, and like something that any of us would want to aspire to, um, it just felt really disconnected from the reality of what the company uh, actually did. And you mentioned um, money as a big uh, driver in WeWork's rise. So private uh, funders valued WeWork mm -hmm. as a billion dollar company, um, a unicorn. I learned a new term from your book, a decacorn, if you're worth 10 billion, like you are mm -hmm. a decacorn. Uh, so you quote a member of WeWork's finance team who said, uh, the nature of private markets is that if nine smart investors pass, it only takes one relatively dumber investor. And then suddenly we're valued at $16 billion. So just say a bit more about um, the role of private investors, um, specifically, um, I think SoftBank um, was one that played a pretty big role. Yeah, I mean, WeWork's rise was was fueled by by private investors from from all kinds of places. Their first investor was Benchmark Capital, a pretty um, one of the sort of blue chip Silicon Valley tech firms. They got money uh, from a lot of New York institutions, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and and eventually SoftBank. And and SoftBank was the biggest one. Um, in in 2017, they invested four billion dollars um, into WeWork, uh, and this was from the Vision Fund, which was a, a sort of $100 billion venture capital fund uh, funded largely by the Saudi Arabian government that, that SoftBank was going out and investing in companies that were by and large tech companies. It was it was meant to focus on on artificial intelligence is kind of what what Masayoshi San, the founder of, of SoftBank and one of the sort of the most famous people in, in kind of the business tech world is what he saw as the future. Um, he, he invested in, in WeWork um, 
you know, ostensibly on, on this notion of, of WeWork was going to figure out how to use technology to sort of disrupt the real estate world. But, but in large part, he, uh, like many others, bought into Adam's vision um, of, of changing the world and, and creating this sort of globe-spanning real estate company that would be unlike any other uh, that existed. And so, you know, the, these venture capital firms are, their whole business model is, is kind of predicated on, on hitting home runs, on um, funding these companies that be, can become these sort of giant world-spanning corporations. And if that means that, you know, they fund 10 companies and eight or nine of them fall apart, but one of them becomes the next Amazon or Facebook or Google or Airbnb or Uber, um, then it's all worth it. So in a lot of ways, WeWork's, you know, rise was was fueled by this group of people that were, were hoping, even if, if the numbers didn't totally make sense, that Adam could figure out how to turn WeWork into one of those kinds of companies. Mm. Um, so SoftBank um, bet mm-hmm. on uh, WeWork and called it um, the next Alibaba um, that you write <laughs> about. So uh, Masayoshi Son, um, the head of um, the Vision Fund of SoftBank was known for investing $20 million in China's Alibaba, this e-commerce platform, which is very similar to Amazon, and ended up with a stake worth more than $100 billion, $20 million to $100 billion in a Chinese, yeah. unknown Chinese tech company. Um, yeah. I mean, he thought big, didn't he? And this comes through in the book when you were um, writing about sort of his relationship with Adam Newman. Yeah, he th- that's what he did is he 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 takes these kind of risky bets and then pushes companies to become bigger and bigger. We say in the book, you know, he he had had this uh nickname from from executives at Alibaba who called him Mr. 10 times and they said every time we had a goal or an ambition, he would say make it 10 times bigger. And that was the same message he delivered to to WeWork and to Adam, you know, you you have a thousand salespeople, have 10,000. You have a million, you have 100,000 members, why don't you have a million members? Um all of all of those kinds of things he was there to sort of push the company and and Adam was was willing to sort of be a vessel for that and and push the company to try to meet those goals. You also write a great deal about the parties um, and the antics. So mm-hmm. uh, I read a lot about tequila shots and fire <laughs> extinguishers. So just tell us uh-huh. a couple of stories. Yeah, well, you know, I'll tell I'll tell the one you're sort of alluding to there, which is um, in in 2016. Uh, you know, WeWork was was running out of cash, and and they were trying to close a, another big investment round and. And they had gone looking for money in China and, and really ha- had struggled to get interest. And, and the only investor who came through was, was uh, a, a fund called Honey Capital. And uh, the investors from Honey, including the founder of the firm, John Honey, were, were in New York. And Adam invited them to We Live, um, the, the sort of apartment tower in, in lower Manhattan where, where a party was happening. And he told them to come by and check it out. Uh, they did. Uh, Adam took them up to the roof uh, of the building, which was not a place he was supposed to go. But at that point, he he more or less owned the building, so he was going to do whatever he wanted. Um, uh, WeWork employee brought up a tray of tequila shots, um, which was just a, a common sight at at pretty much every WeWork event. Adam was a was a big fan of tequila and and handed them out um, at at all kinds of events. And then. At this one in particular, he also brought a fire extinguisher. And af- after everyone gave a toast and, and took their shots, he, he sprayed the investors um, with, with the fire extinguisher. And, 
and it's a it's a ridiculous story and it it sort of repeats itself in all kinds of ways and 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 i think on on the one hand obviously in hindsight you can look at it as kind of this moment of of excess and there were so many in the company but also on the way up it was one of the things that people loved about we work people loved living there you know young or working there rather young people um you know loved going to a company that that knew how to throw a good party and and we obviously now know that that is um is is problematic but but in this case um with with the honey investors you know as as one of the employees who was on the roof told me you know we close the deal next week so you know clearly you know while this would is not something most more conservative business people would do it was part of the way adam operated and part of the swagger that that he had and that attracted people to him and, and part of that was the annual summer camp wasn't it where all the employees and mm-hmm. go somewhere so um I found it really entertaining to read about the summer camps um, and the uh, the requirements for Adam Newman uh, for his um, tent. Uh, just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, WeWork had this annual summer camp uh, for the first five or six years. It was uh, held at, a, at an actual summer camp um, outside of, of New York City. Um, and it was essentially, ostensibly, it was a weekend corporate retreat. What it what it ended up being was was a big party um they would invite big musical guests and there was an open bar and and again a lot of of people who attended describe it as as one of the most fun events they've had by the end of it by 2018 the event was costing the company tens of millions of dollars and and uh, one employee sort of shared with me this um three and a half page long list of of materials that that the newman's wanted for for their sort of compound at summer camp uh you know it was a long list of of alcohol of snacks uh, my favorite was that they needed to have at least 400 plastic shot glasses uh was was my favorite item on the list and and i think eventually this became sort of galling to a lot of WeWork employees who were in tiny tents they were sharing in the cold um and and in the rain and and adam is kind of living in this kind of manse so a lot of the the talk about changing the world and and making it a better place and elevating the world's consciousness sort of started to fall hollow or feel hollow when when he's also doing things like this so let's discuss um the fall of we work um so sure. uh, revenues were doubling every year but expenses were growing um even faster um and so that mm-hmm. was um, one of the um, factors, and in fact, I might tie that into blitz scaling, um, a term that you right. um, you write about, um, mm-hmm. that uh, Silicon Valley, um, lightning growth and not being too worried about risk or cost um, so that mm-hmm. you can gain market share. Um, and mm-hmm. this was one of the kind of um, approaches, um, wasn't it, that kind of fueled the rise of WeWork? Yeah, it was this this sort of growth at all costs mentality, and um, that the idea was that that in order to capture a market, um, you needed to go quick quickly before um, any of your other competitors could sort of catch up, and that if you become this giant company, you sort of become too big to fail. and And this was a thing that uh, an idea that was taking over a lot of tech companies, and where where you know, becoming a platform was the the hot thing to do and becoming a company that sort of took over any one of these industries. And so, uh, you know, Adam uh, and, and WeWork adopted that um, mentality, at least, and, and sort of uh, deployed it, um, 
deployed it in, in growing WeWork, of course, the, the problem was it's just it's just much more expensive to do to build these to build out an actual space than to build a piece of software. And and so the blitzscaling WeWork was much more expensive than than blitzscaling a sort of more traditional tech software company. So um, you write by 2017, so sort of um, the last few years, um, mm -hmm. one of uh, his early investors, Benchmark, uh, was um, increasingly worried. Um, they had thought that WeWork was supposed to be um, $500 billion in profit, but instead it was losing a billion in 2017. Mm -hmm. By 2018, WeWork was losing $2 billion and raised mm -hmm. $702 million in debt financing, and this is after obviously having raised a um, large amount of money from private investors. Um, mm -hmm. The Financial Times uh, that you write about described their community-adjusted EBITDA as perhaps the most infamous financial metric of a generation. So tell us about this um, modified measure of what we would normally take as an indicator of profitability. Yeah, um, you know, e EBITDA is sort of a traditional way of companies sort of, you know, thinking about and and expressing whether they're making money. And it's in uh, WeWork had sort of added on this phrase "community adjusted" uh, to sort of as a way of kind of taking out certain costs that the company said would go away over time: marketing costs, uh, construction design costs, and then also streamlining some of the costs of of their leases. And uh, you know. There's a way in which that that idea isn't totally ridiculous. I, I, I think some some people certainly objected to the notion that those costs would just disappear. Um, what was almost as equally galling was was just the name of it, community adjusted. Nobody knew what that meant, and it, it felt just like kind of another example of the company um, taking this kind of high-minded language and almost trying to pull the wool over people's eyes and and not let them see what it was they were doing, which was just cutting out some of their costs and, and instead kind of inflecting it with this sort of community-focused language. So that was one of the reasons that sort of particularly turned off a lot of investors. And yet at that point, SoftBank was considering putting in more. Um, mm -hmm. And I think around that period, um, they were thinking about as much as $20 billion, which would have put WeWork's value at over $40 billion. And when you were writing about it, you said that would actually double um, the value that SoftBank had put on the company just a year ago. And Adam Newman mm -hmm. would retain control. He would wor be worth $13 billion, making him one of the richest people in the world, but the Saudis um, and Abu Dhabi, who were partly the investors in um, SoftBank, uh, balked at it. Uh, SoftBank's own mm -hmm. listing of its mobile phone arm tank, so the deal was off. So WeWork needed more money, and that's why they planned to IPO um, in 2019. So just describe mm -hmm. um, this uh, IPO and the race to do it um, before the end of last year uh, when we work um, would have run out of money yeah yeah a lot of people i think uh, on the outside of these companies look at ipos as you know this is this is my chance to get in on the next hot company that's going to fund my kids college retirement but in reality ipos are just companies need more money and and they have to go to the private public markets rather to to look for it and that was the case with WeWork, where they weren't going to get any more money from SoftBank. They were continuing to grow at this incredible rate. Um, and and to do that, they, they needed more money. And so that drove the impulse um, for WeWork to go public. Adam Newman had 
had hopes to avoid it for a long time. Being a public company just requires more scrutiny um, and and honestly kind of some some sort of uh, suppressing of, of some of the grand ambitions that he had. Um, so it was not something that, that he or the company sort of did willfully, but it was sort of a necessity by the end if, if the company was going to be able to continue growing the way that it, it hoped to. So as part of promoting uh, this IPO, trying to get interest in it, you write that Adam Newman mm -hmm. struggled to explain why WeWork was different from um, another real estate leasing company, IWG, which is trading at a market capitalization of $4 billion and not the $47 billion valuation of WeWork. So um, just mm -hmm. tell us about the failure of the IPO. Yeah, I mean, a few things happened. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, few people finally got a look at the numbers and they saw how much money WeWork was losing. Um, they saw that, you know, there was this feeling or this fear almost in the real estate world that WeWork had sort of figured something out that the rest of the real estate world hadn't. But but when people looked at the numbers, it it looked kind of like a normal sort of real estate business. And, and then when you took sort of the way that looked with kind of all of this um, sort of gobbledygook language that was attached to the company about elevating the world's consciousness, um, the, the, the IPO paperwork was filled with these kind of buzzwords and taglines about the energy of we. Um, and, and then along with kind of some of the conflicts of interest that emerged, the, the way that, that Adam and his family were sort of profiting off of the company gave this perception of, of, of just a, a, you know, a sort of a perfect storm of, of problems. Uh, the, the numbers weren't good. Um, no one could quite figure out what the company was or what it in, intended to be. And then it seemed to have all these problems sort of at the heart of it. And, and a lot of them stemming from Adam, I think, just gave uh, investors pause. And, and in the public markets, these are just more cautious, more conservative investors than they are um, in, in the venture capital world. And and they weren't willing to take a risk on the company. So just say a bit more about um, the kind of conflicts of interest that, um, that mm -hmm. you write about, which is part of the issue with public investors sort of um, walking and then them, them basically having to pull the IPO. Yeah, there were a few things. I mean, the the biggest one was that that Adam himself was was the uh, owner of, of several buildings that WeWork was leasing. Um, so so in, in that way, uh, his own company was paying him rent, um, and and you know when it comes time to negotiate the lease, uh, who who's gonna gonna win out on that negotiation, and and it was those kinds of things that just gave at, at least the perception of a company that that did not have strong corporate governance. Um, there was there was another case in which Adam had sold um, had had personally bought sort of trademarks sort of these we related trademarks that he he then sold to the company for 5.9 million dollars um and and in some ways these were like sort of accounting decisions but but in 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 total they kind of gave the perception of a of a company that was as much a family business um as it was a, a company ready to be public um, you also wrote that um, Adam Newman sold millions of dollars worth of shares in 2017. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And the question that you asked was, um, why cash out if there are greater riches ahead? So why did he do it? Um, good question. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, the obvious answer is that he, he 
he wanted to cash out um, and, and that he wanted uh, at the time to have these hundreds of millions of dollars that he would otherwise have to be waiting for. I mean, the, the cynical view is, is, did he actually believe that, that the company was going to be worth as much as, as the private investors were valuing? Um, I think he did. Uh, I, I think he knew he was, he was pulling some kind of trick, but, but, um, and that, and that this might not work out. But I, I think he also believed very strongly in, in the company and the, and the fact that it was, and, and, a, and a belief that it was, it was going to become as, as big. And he, as he and Masayoshi Son, um, uh, hoped it would be, but, you know, the Newmans at one point owned seven homes um, and were spending close to $100 million on, on personal real estate alone. So um, you have to fund that in some way. And, and Adam, you know, it was is not alone in, in startup founders uh, sort of selling off some of their shares in order to, to live the lifestyle they, they want. But he certainly was, was more extravagant than most. And um, how did Adam Newman end up getting ousted from WeWork? Um, and, um, and I think you write that, um, SoftBank's, um, uh, uh san said we created a monster. Um, so they mm-hmm. were part of the exit for Adam, wasn't, weren't they? Yeah. You know, we, eventually once things went sour with the IPO, um, it, it became clear to, to WeWork's backers and, and Adam's backers that, that a lot of the problems were tied up with him and and that it was going to be hard for the company to move forward and so um you know and, and the company also needed needed money so so softbank came in with this this kind of rescue package um part of which was was predicated on adam stepping down as as ceo and and, a, and it was clear that now you know the backer that he had once depended on um, was now saying that he was not the person most um, well equipped to to lead uh, the company forward, and and you know he was he was kind of out of chips at that point. It, all of his money was at this point, you know, still tied up in the company. He the last thing he wanted was to see it go down, and and certainly in that moment, um, it, it felt like there was no other option but for for Adam to to step down. Uh, so SoftBank has not been sued, haven't they? So there's a legal dispute going on right now. So w- what's happened to WeWork? Um, yes, the the exit package that that SoftBank and Adam agreed to this roughly billion dollar exit package is is now under dispute. There's there's uh, the lawyers are involved. Um, uh, the SoftBank is claiming that that WeWork itself uh, sort of did not live up to various terms of the deal, and and that is is going to be adjudicated in, in in the months ahead, and and we'll we'll see what happens. Um, WeWork itself is is trying to figure out how to be a commercial real estate company in in the pandemic, um, which is is a tricky proposition. You know, they they have uh, given up the dream of of we grow and we live and and all these other things, and are trying to focus on being a real estate company. Um, and getting back to the core of kind of what the company does, um, the trouble, of course, is that the brand is is a bit tarnished, and and they're going to have to fix that. And then and then the other trouble is that right now um, there there are a few things worse than than being an office space operator, and and they're trying to figure out along with the rest of the commercial real estate world um, how to get people to come back to offices and and what that will look like. So, um, what's next for Adam Newman? Have you followed that? Um, a few weeks ago, he he invested in a, in a new company. Um, it's a, it's sort of a residential uh, focused uh, startup. Um, he's he's made several investments um, over the course of this year. Uh, 
I don't suspect that he's going to go quietly into early retirement in his in his early 40s. He's he's the kind of person who, um, you know, worked very hard for for everything else that's been said about him. And and I think wants to to make an impact and it will just sort of remain to be seen what he decides to do. Um, But I think he's he's the kind of person who people are going to be willing to take a chance on, whether it's investors, whether it's politics is something he talked about. But um, I I, I feel fairly confident that we will we will hear from Adam Newman again. And finally, uh, what is your biggest takeaway um, from the WeWork story? I think as we looked at this story, I saw it as a story about the last decade in a number of ways and and the decade of the 2010s in in kind of the startup world and and the fact that so much of the growth that existed in in a decade of growth um was these kinds of companies that grew grew very quickly and some of them have obviously become very successful in in crucial parts of our lives and and others have, have spent lots of money and been unable to figure out how to actually make things work while kind of warping these economies along the way. So I, I think as, as we sort of enter a new era, I'm, I'm eager to find out what lessons, if any, the sort of venture capital startup world learns from this. And I, I think one is just that, you know, growth at all costs has its, has its dangers and, and growing in so many different directions at, at such speed can push a company to do things it isn't good at, can push a company to, to do things it's not, it's not equipped or, or prepared to take on. And, and it's, it's going to be hard to tell future f- founders to, to be more humble um, in, in their ambitions, but, but I think having some amount of humility, um, even while trying to build a, a, a giant, fast-growing company, is, is going to be a necessary ingredient to, to long-term success. Thank you very much. Um, it's a great note to end on. Um, so thank you very much to Reeves Weideman. And do pick up his new book, Billion Dollar Loser. It is a stimulating tale with lots of anecdotes. And who knew that co-working office space could be such a wild read? <laughs> um, thank you all for tuning in, for listening. Uh, for more podcasts, please go to intelligencesquare.com. And I'm Linda Yu. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.